Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. The word ministry is either purposefully or neglectfully vague. As best I can tell, it refers to the duties and occupation of a religious leader. There are, of course, ministers of the state as well. I think there is some sort of connotation that implies acting out of a responsibility. Perhaps what confuses me is that the duties of ministry seem to be unique to each minister, not even each religion. So a minister of a government usually has a clearly spelled out role to fill. But in religion, ministers seem to only need to be some form of clergy to count as such. But a ministry implies fulfilling the role of a minister, which again seems to me like the definition starts to go in circles. Ministry is what ministers do, and ministers are the one who do ministry. This seems to mean precisely nothing. Perhaps that is all right. Different religions will likely have different ministry philosophies and practices. Let's narrow our understanding to Christian ministry. Many Christians will argue that the word ministry is from the Greek word deleo, meaning to serve as a slave. In the New Testament, ministry is seen as a service to God and to other people in his name. That's pretty strong language, but perhaps if I want to respectfully understand what this means with some level of historical context or empathy, this philosophy of ministry assumes everyone to be a slave of something. The idea is that being a deacon of God places service to him as the most important thing and, by extension, serving others as God commands. In American evangelicalism, Ministry is seen more as an activity carried out by all Christians to spread their faith, the prototype being the Great Commission, go and make disciples. The Encyclopedia of Christianity defines ministry as carrying forth Christ's mission in the world. There seems to be some distinction between the office of minister and the duty of all Christians, but the conversation starts to get confusing here. Some ministries are identified formally and so specifically as a duty for, cur- for clergy, and some are not. Some ministry is directed towards members of the church and some towards non-members. The more specific you get into a Christian denomination, the more different the norms are regarding what ministry actually is. Ultimately, White evangelicalism, as well as its Protestant predecessors, specifically in contrast with the Catholic Church, have sought to remove some of the elitism that comes with nebulous phrases such as call to ministry and clarify that service to God and others is a Christian requirement for all. Even so, many churches still guard certain duties, such as who can preach, 
serve communion, baptize, teach Sunday school, pass offertory plates, and other types of tradition. I think evangelicalism wants its adherents to all be evangelizing more than anything, and they sometimes use the words evangelizing and ministering interchangeably. But what about Jesus' ministry? Most Christians would center the narrative on how Jesus' ministry was radical, and it certainly was in many ways. Jesus ministered to many of his day's outcasts, including women, Samaritans, tax collectors, and fishermen. Granted, Jesus targeted Jews and didn't seem to focus on Gentiles, but he was rather odd compared to the religious leaders of the time. One of the groups he seemed most concerned with in a countercultural way was the poor. Most famously, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Jesus famously rebuked the rich young ruler and told him to sell everything and then give all the earnings to the poor. One of my favorite passages that isn't talked about enough comes from Luke 14. Quote, Jesus said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. I don't hear too many pastors harp on this quote for very long. Here's an important parable from Jesus. Quote, The land of a rich man produced plentiful, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. End quote. In that same chapter, Jesus proceeds to discuss not being anxious about anything, what you eat, what you will wear, or where you will sleep. He builds up to the main point, which is, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, it seems from a plain reading and historical context and the original language and any rational angle of interpreting this text, that if you were to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, giving to the poor would be a marker of your identity. I don't know a logical way around this. Jesus seems to be clearly anti-hoarding wealth and anti-having many possessions. This doesn't harmonize well with capitalism or American exceptionalism. As billionaires twiddle their thumbs in the sky while evading taxes and giving away only fractions of fractions of fractions of percentages of their wealth away, it is hard not to look to Jesus at times like these and say, we need you. The problem is, the religion that claimed him, Christianity, 
seems to have quite a different attitude toward the poor. The best case scenario I have seen from white evangelicalism is that they see poor folk as targets. The poor are targeted as potential converts. This is not just those of us in low-income brackets. They target those poor in spirit as well. Keep in mind, they, they do this with both non-believers and believers. Poor congregants may be offered jobs at the church in good faith, but there is nothing good about the faith at play. They are trapping poor congregants to coerce more regular church attendance. But even more sinister are the prison ministries, the soup kitchens, the food banks, and hospital visits. And please don't misunderstand me. There are genuine souls who participate in these things. I have done such tasks as a Christian and not, and can transparently say that intentions in both cases were pretty wholesome. But the white evangelical system demands an ulterior agenda. By its very nature, all ministry from evangelicals is aimed at evangelizing. The ability to help the poor for the mere sake of helping the poor becomes impossible. The poor are not targeted simply because Jesus told his followers to target the poor, which he most certainly did not view them as targets. They are targeted in evangelicalism because they are vulnerable targets who are more desperate with more needs. Therefore, if I have a magic formula of thinking that erases all problems with a simple belief, you will listen to what I have to say. The reason the poor are viewed as targets by the white evangelical cult is undoubtedly because they are seen as inferior. This is where American capitalism unquestionably influences the cult. One of the many ways that Americans, Christian or not, cope with the mass inequality that burdens the majority of folk is what social scientists call system justification theory. System justification theory seeks to explain the ubiquity and attitudes and beliefs that seem to contradict the personal interest of individuals. According to this theory, individuals like to perceive the world as predictable, or else they will not feel a sense of control, and negative emotional states would prevail. To perceive the world as predictable, they feel motivated to assume that society is fair and just. Accordingly, they justify the existing structures and hierarchies in society, which substantiates the legitimacy of societal principles and practices. This is true when folks automatically assume people are poor due to their lack of personal achievement and are rich due to merit. Regardless of whether someone can be poor based on failure or rich based on success, it is a much simpler view than the reality of our current economic structure. In fact, some might try to even uh, even the proverbial playing field, if you will, through myths that Poor folk are more happy than rich folk, and this is objectively false. While, again, it can be true in limited ways, it is not most commonly accurate. Remember, people's system-justifying motive produces the phenomenon known as outgroup favoritism, an acceptance of inferiority among low-status groups, and a positive image of relatively higher 
status groups. This is why the conversation can get confusing when I talk about churches targeting the poor. Aren't there poor pastors? Doesn't the church's income and size often vary based on location and the economics locally? Well, yes and no. There are economic realities that cannot be escaped, and thus all my generalities won't apply to every American church ever all the time. However, the philosophy of ministry in the United States version of white evangelicalism is to convert by any means necessary. This drive is passively violent. It causes the white evangelical to care more about a poor person who is interested in hearing more about Jesus than one who is not. For the evangelical, the poor are only valuable if they are attainable. And in this way, they are not valuable at all. Beyond that, the temptation to have a messiah complex is undeniable. Cult leaders are masters of telling someone that they have no worth apart from their cult and that their cult somehow gives you power over others. The common human experience is seen as something to tap into in a rhetorical debate, not as a humbling admission that none of us are superior to the next. And this is hard to do, even humanistically, when you are a fairly moral person who has seen disturbing and immoral behavior from others that you would never even consider, but it can be done secularly. It cannot be done religiously. A prescribed hierarchy that centers around one human that may or may not have claimed to be God inherently dictates that you do whatever that guy said. And yet, I know a few Christians who have ever sold all their possessions and given to everything to the poor. I, I feel so gaslighted. Now, someone might come along and say, well, why didn't you give away all your possessions? Firstly, I would like to say that I actually had to give away nearly all my possessions when I was borderline homeless and moved what little I could fit into a Dodge Caravan and lived in that van a hundred days. Ironically, that happened after I left the church. But secondly, prior to becoming a van life monk, I wanted to be a radical. I wanted to be monastic and help the widow and poor full time. But I would have been called crazy if I sold everything. And the first people who would have called me crazy were the very Christians I grew up with and went to Bible college with. If literally all of them were acting like that was not a requirement, and people who even approach that radical lifestyle are considered crazy, why would I go out on that limb? Even though I felt that it was indeed the right way to follow Jesus, I was told to doubt myself and trust the system. I was in a cult that felt no responsibility toward the poor. I was in a cult that talked about welfare queens and giving people fishing poles instead of fish. Personally, I'd like to skip the damn metaphor and just feed people. Even though Jesus was clear that to feed anyone would be like feeding him, his supposed worshipers are reluctant to serve and they race to justify the status quo. I go back and forth between being outraged and confused by the church's attitude towards the poor. 
The outrage likely stems from the fact that American churches receive somewhere around 30% of all charitable giving in this country with no guarantee that that money will help poor people. The confusion comes from all the sermons I have heard that seem to dodge the issues about Jesus' prescription for his followers to live with no possessions. I, I genuinely get sick to my stomach talking about this. The mismanagement of funds, the waste of resources, but more than anything, the superiority complexes are so deeply harmful that I can't help but hurt thinking about it. And I generally try not to overemphasize politics in this podcast because I'm so disenfranchised with our entire political system that I don't want anything negative or positive I say about any ideology to then be misconstrued as an endorsement or condemnation of a particular party or end of the ideological spectrum. However, on this issue, there are undeniably politics at play. Republican politicians and conservative activists working through Christian churches have learned to manipulate the human desires of revenge, order, status, and independence to win over a large proportion of evangelical voters. The evangelical is told to vengefully hold accountable those who have taken away so many jobs from hardworking Americans, even though that's been mostly robots, not immigrants. The white evangelical has been told that there must be law and order, and those thugs in the ghetto don't respect the law of the land. Even though white people designed the order of things to benefit them and still end up committing more crimes. The evangelical is told that status is a sign of merit, not favor, even though they, they supposedly believe in a religion that recognizes neither. The evangelical is reminded that everyone is independent, so if someone is poor, that person must be responsible for their circumstance. The, the evangelical cult has gotten in bed with a political ideology that seems to directly contrast the man they worship. It's horrifying, the levels of cognitive dissonance. It makes one wonder whether it is true stupidity and ignorance or if something more disturbing is going on. Could it be possible that white evangelical churches don't want poor people to be their focus because they'd rather have more money coming in than going out? Think about it. From a business perspective, if people are your product, you want them to have a free experience with premium options, and you want to invest more in the paying customer and shareholder experience than those just using you for free. The last thing you would want to do is use up all your funds in on those who aren't even using your product yet, unless you are merely advertising to them. If churches were businesses, they'd be damn good ones. The problem is that they identify as supernatural charities. They aren't supposed to have a product or investors or premium options. They should have some ability to respond to a poverty crisis and be a refuge for anyone who needs them. The fact of the matter is that churches need people more than people need churches. 
Churches are tax exempt. Churches get money for providing nothing. While less members are giving less of their income, somehow churches still have more money now than ever. Why do they feel absolutely no burden to be nighttime homeless shelters, full-time food banks, and how dare they feel like they can exploit those with nothing in efforts to lure those people to their faith? Again, I feel so gaslighted. I feel crazy for wanting an institution that claims Christ to serve him by serving others. Not with meals that come at a price of a lecture. Not with institutions for women that primarily function only to discourage abortion. Not as an expression of superiority, but because service is what you would think Christianity is supposed to do by definition. A church that doesn't primarily function as a fund for the poor seems to only exist to ask for funds from the poor and the middle and the rich. White evangelicalism sets the poor as targets of proselytization, not as targets of love and money. I do not believe cult leaders when they tell me it's not about the money. I have been inside too many of the homes that pastors own. I've been a part of too many churches that not only had no homeless folk, but would discourage reaching out and inviting the houseless. I am not exaggerating. As a pastoral intern, I tried to start a homeless ministry where the plug was pulled at last minute due to the more affluent church members being concerned that homeless folk would be near their kids at church. I had ministers tell me that ministry to the poor is complicated. You should never just write checks without checking on their spiritual life first. Whether you are inside or outside the congregation, if you are poor, you are lesser, and the church feels like it only owes you a message, likely not one of universal hope, but of how your only hope is to submit to their system. This becomes the crux of how ministry by Christians is problematic. Ministry is a means to an ego boost of the minister. Whatever form helping takes it is often disingenuous. I get reluctant to judge individual volunteers' intentions, and often my default is to actually assume the best. I don't want to get caught up in a shame trap and just assume all Christians who minister in all kinds of ways have sinister aspirations— But what their system demands is spelled out and certainly toxic. I I just got done coaching a football camp. And one of the things I emphasize to kids is that I do not want them to help each other out just to impress me. I won't be impressed by it. I want to see them help each other as a default. They are all on the same team and it makes no sense to not want to help your teammates. It works against your own interest, and even more importantly, it makes an uglier world to not have a default posture of benevolence. And yes, we have to define a lot of terms when I lecture these poor children. Bless their heart for putting up with me. I I borrow the YMCA's four core values when I coach, which are caring, honesty, respect, and responsibility. I don't let my kids just memorize those four words and explain them generally as be nice, don't lie, listen to teachers, and take care of your belongings. Those aren't values. That's indoctrinating behavior that makes kids easier to control. 
If you ask the kids that I have trained, what does caring mean? They will tell you that it means paying attention to the needs of others. Sharing is not caring just because it rhymes. Sharing is caring because it pays attention to what your friend needs to feel good, to bond with you, or maybe what is just fair to them. So when a Christian sees a need, it may look like they are caring since they seem to be paying attention. But what are they paying attention to? Are they paying attention to what that person needs or are they paying attention to how receptive they might be to the minister's message? Non-Christians do this too. It is often hard to understand that you might be fulfilling your own need to be seen as helpful or build your own self-esteem by doing good things rather than actually paying attention to what people's needs really are. And some philosophers have pondered whether there is actually such a thing as a selfless act. After all, it is ourselves that are participating in the action. We cannot completely remove the drive of our self-interest, self-protection, and self-awareness. Even so, I am not as concerned with whether or not there is some element of self-benefit in our charity. What deeply concerns me is when charitable acts are a means to the end of self-benefit. In a self-absorbed culture, there will be some egocentric seasoning sprinkled in our helpfulness. But we should not use people as pawns to win our games. If we pay attention to what other people's needs are, we will likely help in more tangibly helpful ways than harmful ways. This might not seem counter to Christian culture in a pragmatic sense, but it is diametrically opposed to evangelical culture in a philosophical sense. You are repeatedly told the only pure motive for helping others is subservience to their God. You are told that no good deeds are helpful if they aren't ultimately aimed to display how loving their cult is. No non-Christian is helpful without a metaphysical ethic that points to the cult of Christianity's common grace doctrine. But helpful people tend to help people regardless of ideology. But the propaganda is hard to ignore in this sect. The idea of being authentically helpful is muddied because evangelicals do not believe authenticity can be helpful without the prerequisite of submitting to their God's authority. That means that when I was a Christian in high school and my non-believing friend gave me gas money one week and I paid for their meal the next, their good deed was not truly good but mine was. And the academic Christian will staunchly disagree and say, it isn't about identity, but about motives. Perhaps my atheist gas-giving friend in high school was motivated by the common grace that God grants all people, and thus was unknowingly participating in the divine's benevolence, and I was sinfully boosting my own ego despite my faith, and thus was sinning when I paid for her meal. And these technicalities are not only a little ridiculous, but also point to the problem of assuming only God can cause good in people. It is most likely that I paid for the meal out of some sense of feeling indebted, but also because I simply wanted to do something nice. It is also likely my friend gave me gas money because she knew I was broke and wanted to spend time with me. There can be self-interest in being helpful, but neither of us were being egotistical nor defiant of the divine. The ego is not evil, but it can cause many problems. 
The part of us that views ourselves as important is invaluable when it comes to our survival, narrative building, and finding ways to belong. Where we go wrong is when we are so preoccupied with our self-importance that we neglect to realize our smallness, our equality, and our dependence on each other. White evangelicalism is a doctrine of ego inflation. And when we go back to the figurehead of Jesus, it is striking how his ego works. He seems confident that he is important, but not overwhelmingly so considering. Uh, For a person of his historical importance, what is compelling is how willing he was to humble himself even to the point of a wrongful death. But Christians take this concept so far that they actually end up teaching something quite different than humility. Humility is the posture of limiting our ego not to be confused with removing it altogether. Attempts to have no ego often have unintended effects. Trying to erase your importance makes your unimportance feel so important that you are preoccupied with yourself and most likely depressed, a rather deadly combination. The evangelical cult is not afraid to remind you that you are small, and it is unconcerned if your depression is a result of submission to their God. They will try to reframe this discussion with the notion that God loves you, and it is paramount to view yourself how he views you. The problem is that God seems to condition his love on how much you are subservient to him. And rhetorically, they might say the opposite, but they make an illogical claim when they do such. God never changes his love. We simply move farther or closer to him. Well, how does one move farther or nearer? It is measured by how much you conform to the cult's interpretation of his supposed rules. So it is conditional then. And if that love is conditional and God's love is a role model model for how love works for all people, it follows that loving acts within the cult that submit to this ideology are also conditional, or at least have some kind of expectations attached. I have seen this play out over and over again. Ministries have been built on a principle of expecting the Lord to work as they help others. One of the missions organizations I did a lot of work for, including children's programs overseas, helping to build houses for poor people in rural communities, and doing work to plant churches— has this as their mission statement, quote, We are called to be obedient to the Great Commission by teaching people to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, to be baptized, and to obey all that Jesus commands. To help people through this organization was not help, but rather a lure to their message. This is almost always the case in the white evangelical cult. In a world full of toxic Christianity, one man has elected to change everything. What's his name? No, what's his name? (laughs) Oh, it's me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm John Verner, son of Timothy Verner. (laughs) That's my dad's real name. God help the poor guy. (laughs) I'm just out here trying to tell people Christianity's a cult. Yeah, he is. And he's even written a whole freaking book about it. And now you can read all about his opinions 
in The Cult of Christianity by John Werner. Yeah, you should go buy my book, guys. It helps me buy Taco Bell. One of the biggest problematic facets of ministry by white evangelicals is that it is fundamentally close-minded. The act of saying, I am the one who can help you, easily creates a power dynamic. Now, I am not the kind of postmodern deconstructionist that judges all power dynamics to be automatically evil, but will, will almost certainly cause problematic behavior is a failure to acknowledge the existence of certain power dynamics. Remember, ministry is supposed to connote servitude, or perhaps even slavery in some sense. Creating businesses, or if we want to be charitable, we can call them charities, that primarily display the service are actually not truly humble, but necessarily self-righteous. We see this all the time with secular charities. Some examples include many cancer awareness funds, Project Cure, the Red Cross, most police and firefighter charities, and supposed children's charities. Please do your research before you ever donate to a charity. What is more sinister about churches, though, is that they know how to leverage their supposed good deeds better than anyone, with no actual requirement or accountability for doing anything at all. But even deeper than this apparent injustice is that the policies and practices of churches are close-minded by design. Whether their orthopraxies be vague or detailed, cooperating or listening to other perspectives on ministering is rare. I remember when my fundamentalist church in high school teamed up with Habitat for Humanity to help build a home for some folks who lost their house in a tornado. It is interesting to go to Habitat's website and read their mission, vision, and principles. Quote, Our mission, seeking to put God's love in action, Habitat for Humanity brings people together to build homes, communities, and hope. Our vision, a world where everyone has a decent place to live. Our principles, one, demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. Two, focus on shelter. Three, advocate for affordable housing. Four, promote dignity and hope. Five, support sustainable and transformative development. Further down on the site, it becomes even more fascinating to me. Quote, non-prostolatizing policy. Habitat for Humanity and its affiliate organizations will not proselytize, nor will Habitat work with entities or individuals who insist on proselytizing as part of their work with Habitat. This means that Habitat will not offer assistance on the expressed or implied condition that people must adhere to or convert to a particular faith or listen and respond to messaging designed to induce conversion to a particular faith. End quote. Because of this section, many evangelical churches talk negatively about Habitat, demonizing them and refuse to work with them, even though it could not be more obvious that they are, in fact, a Christian organization. When my church agreed to work with them, my church made it clear that we were allowed to disregard uh, that last policy if we felt like it, excuse me, if the Holy Spirit was leading. Um... And I think the Habitat coordinator sensed this and made sure that we never actually interacted with any of the folks we were building a house for. 
and good on Habitat. That was a good call on their part. If my church could get an ego boost from simply working with an organization like this that still makes no apologies for being Christian and felt that they were being open-minded by this cooperation, it shows how deep the self-righteousness runs. Again, full kudos for us for building a house for someone for free. But honestly, we just showed up and lifted some frames, hammered some nails, and had a good time. Habitat for Humanity did all the hard stuff. I felt how superior that church leadership thought themselves to be, though, compared to everyone else on that trip. It is hard to pay attention to the needs of others if you're already locked into your perceptions of what everyone needs and that you think you possess the message that cures. If your mind is closed, your heart will be too. And a lot of this is connected to the concept of conversion numbers. Now, the idea of counting how many people, churches, and ministries are converting is a topic debated internally within evangelicalism. Many in that cult do see how problematic it is to emphasize people as numbers. I'm not sure if that critical sect, though, constitutes a majority. I mean, one of the largest evangelical ministries on an international scale is Evangelism Explosion. They envision, quote, every nation equipping every people group and every age group to witness to every person, end quote. And maybe if you replace the words to witness with to feed, I might be more interested. But proselytizing on this scale is actually rather creepy to me. I remember I was working in the mission field as a teenager with my dad, and there was a guest lecturer from Evangelism Explosion. And my dad warned me that if he got me alone one-on-one, he would likely try to save me. And I was confused because everyone at that mission camp was a professing Christian. And sure enough, most of the lectures that guy gave centered around how many might think they are saved, but have never made a concrete decision to follow Christ no matter what. And they need to be certain of their faith and be ready to make disciples of others. And rather predictably, toward the end of the week, this man did approach me while I was by myself. His voice got low and soft, and he started interrogating me about my faith. And I was firm in my communicating that I was indeed a Christian. It felt like he was almost disappointed that he couldn't count me as a number that he had converted. It felt like a confrontation with a mob boss, not an organic interaction between two people who were supposedly family. Evangelism Explosion claims to be responsible for the growth of evangelicalism and often cites conversion stories and numbers as recruiting tools, training literature, and they do it to pressure people into getting baptized. Evangelism Explosion is best known for its two diagnostic questions that users can ask non-Christians as a means of determining, quote, a person's spiritual health, and of stimulating an evangelistic conversation. The questions go as follows. 1. Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you can say you know for certain that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? 2. Suppose that you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? After the diagnostic questions, the evangelist is encouraged to explain the gospel in terms of grace, man, God, Christ, and faith. 
And these are the exact questions the mafia evangelist asked me when I was already a Christian on the mission field. And it was genuinely intimidating. Now, contrasting an organization such as this with something like Habitat for Humanity is easily. I would clearly respect the latter for many reasons and find nothing dignified about the former. Even so, in white evangelicalism, they are viewed as equivalent at best and at worst. Evangelizing is actually more important to Christians than serving needs. Conversion is damn important to evangelicals. Their identity is dependent on it, so much so that ministry is ranked based on its emphasis on conversion, not on the needs that are met. It is worth exploring the spiritual realm versus the material realm here. If your belief is that spiritual significance infinitesimally outweighs any material significance, it is perfectly sincere and logical to be preoccupied with serving spiritual needs primarily. However, white evangelicalism doesn't uh, regulate itself to merely emphasize the metaphysical. Instead, the dogma emphasizes attaching physical necessities to their propaganda. Union Gospel Mission, an organization I have donated to and have seen do a good amount of things for homeless folks, still has a deeply problematic mission statement. Quote, Our purpose is partnering with the Inland Northwest to reach the poor with the love and power of the gospel so that they may become God-dependent, contributing members of society. The problems are twofold here. One, why must they be God-dependent? In fairness, this flows from the belief that evangelicals tout, namely that all humans are already God-dependent, but they emphasize preaching the gospel, and that clarifies that they mean subservience to religion, not a general acknowledgement that we are all dependent on God, but a specific one. And two, they reveal that their ultimate goal is for the houseless to become contributing members of society. In other words, they want them working and paying taxes. Fine. To some extent, that is a good side quest, but it doesn't seem like a good main focus as a ministry. This is paying less attention to the needs of the houseless, which is rather obviously needing a house, but more practically the needs of the donors to feel like someone else is finally going to do their part. And once again, I know there were great things about UGM from friends I have had who have worked there. Unfortunately, I've also learned that people were pressured to behave certain ways and believe certain ways with nonverbal cues or sometimes even audible commands, implying that it was the houseless folks' means to receive any aid. And this type of thinking is common in homeless ministry especially. The principle is not to house first, but rather to preach first. And some more progressive Christians do say, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That is something like what Habitat for Humanity tries to do. Growing up, I heard this phrase attacked, made fun of, and criticized by my pastor often. White evangelicals, especially the more conservative variety, desire that where material assistance is given, that their gospel message be preached tenfold. This is a weaponized interpretation of Mark 8.36, which says, 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Neglecting the fact that earlier in the same chapter, Jesus fed 4,000 people without preaching to them, this verse is actually talking to those who want to follow Jesus, commanding that they must give up their quest for ultimate power. In no way was Jesus saying, don't feed people unless you're going to preach to them. It is cultish to assume that your set of beliefs is more important than basic necessities. We all need food, shelter, water, clothing, and care. This is often a simple case of misplaced priorities for the individual. If you view a message as the only hope for humanity, of course you are going to focus your time, money, and energy on spreading that message. But what ends up happening is that the dollar to conversion the dollar to conversion ratio becomes the ultimate bottom line, which makes paying attention to the needs of others much more difficult. And I used to love uh, to repeat the phrase, you can't hear the gospel on an empty stomach as a Christian. And I am confident my intentions were good for latching onto this mantra, but the intentions don't mitigate the harm this way of thinking can cause. For a long time, I felt the essential needs of people were important to meet if we were going to preach to someone. However, this incidentally makes those with more material needs than the rest feel exposed and vulnerable to churches, not seen and loved. You feel like a project, not a person. When I lost almost everything and was wrestling with my spiritual identity, it became quite apparent that I felt my Christian status was parallel to my financial. And where had this neuropath come from? And the quirkier experience was how I somehow felt more spiritually in tune with something the less I had. And I knew this was consistent with Jesus's ministry, but it wasn't consistent with evangelicalism. Intertwining the material, metaphysical, supernal, and supernatural and proselytization ends up confusing all values. The entanglement of feeding with preaching directly links full stomachs with full commitments. Addressing needs through the template of fulfilling the cult's agenda speaks volumes to the clear lack of capability for evangelicals to be empathetic. Just because an organization can afford to feed you materially does not mean they know what is best for you spiritually. Their privilege should not demand your allegiance. Evangelical cult leaders commit abuses beyond exploiting material needs for their benefit. They also try to make all emotional needs spiritual needs. Humans have basic emotional needs. We need affection. This can be expressed verbally, sexually, or in other ways. The evangelical will tell you that this need primarily or maybe even merely exists because you crave God's love. We need acceptance. This can be found in belonging to a community, sharing a goal with a colleague, or simply by spending time with someone. But the evangelical cult will tell you that Jesus is the only one who can ever actually really accept all of you. Then they will demand that you change your entire life to suit their interpretation of his rules. We need validation. This is similar to acceptance, and we most often have this need met when our feelings are affirmed as sensical and thoughts upheld as intelligible. 
but the evangelical cult will tell you that your thoughts and feelings are only valid if they are held captive by their cult's principles. We need autonomy. It is essential to maintain a sense of self and understand your existence as unique. But the evangelical cult will strip you of your autonomy and only talk of individuality in light of God's creativity. Screw yours. We need security. Humans want their boundaries respected, their choices supported, and to have something comforting to fall back on. But the evangelical cult says you are in grave danger unless you believe as they do. We need connection. This means we need to feel we are growing with other humans, that we are learning about each other, that we are assimilating without conforming, that we have unity but not uniformity. The evangelical says your only true family is the Christian community. We need space. Some more than others, but we all need alone time. We all need sections of the house that belong to only us, and we need to explore the outdoors and solitude to keep ourselves grounded. The cult of Christianity reminds you that God is always watching, reading your mind, and will never leave you alone. Evangelicalism needs people to depend on it in order to make the claims it wishes to make. They do not respect secular psychology because it is in direct competition with their bid to minister to you. Some Christians are certainly more concerned with folks' mental health than others. Even so, the false dichotomy that both the humanist and religious use of the head and heart complicates emotional and spiritual matters. Emotions are directly related to our brains. There might be something more spiritual about them, there might not, but regardless, most emotional needs are as universal as any other physical need. But spiritual needs are more personal and ambiguous, and this, but this narrative does not suit the evangelical cult's needs. For them, emotional needs have to be either reduced as unimportant or reframed as indicators of human dependence on God. This practice of rhetorically dismantling basic needs and reforming them to fit an evangelist script is abusive and abhorrent. The emotional enlightenment required to deconstruct these myths when they were indoctrinated into you from such a young age is vast. This has taken me hard work to realize, I assure you. It sucks. Realizing how you have been manipulated to believe you can only turn to one source to get what you need. And put simply, it's a lie. Churches need people more than people need churches. There are two main emotional needs that I see the cult of Christianity exploit more directly than the rest. Cult leaders exploit the need for acceptance and connection. In a culture that still doesn't accept everyone, and it feels so disconnected, Christianity offers a compelling case for their subscription service. I so badly wish that some being in control of everything knew me better than I could ever know myself and accepted me more than I could ever accept myself. It would be wonderful if there was some ultimate oneness that we could connect with that would in turn connect us all to each other, our environment, animals, and the great beyond. And you know what? Something like that might even exist. But regardless of whether or not something like that does exist, the cult of Christianity 
are not the gatekeepers to accessing the spirituality. We still have a real human need to be accepted by our peers, and maybe even more importantly, a need to accept ourselves. Spiritual wanderings aside, it is bad for our brains to feel unaccepted. (laughs) And I have never felt more unaccepted than when I am around the Christian community. The real need for connection is a beautiful entrance into exploring the philosophical, metaphysical, and supernatural disaster of our quest for greater things. But it is also more basic than that. We need to feel connected when we look into each other's eyes. And we need friends, not just an online list of strangers listed as such. And this is not a Christian or non-Christian need. If someone converts to Christianity, these needs don't dissolve. Being satisfied with your emotional state is great, but being in denial to avoid the stress of emotional needs is awful. So, through the ordinary and special ministries of the church, you may find a solution to physical or emotional needs, but what you won't find is a magical absolving of the normal needs of being human. In fact, it only creates and sustains problematic behaviors when folks feel like their faith prevents them from feeling the normal stress of existence. It is, by definition, exceptionalism. To preach against self-righteousness is ironically to preach against the cult of Christianity. They cannot offer you a drug that cures your needs, only one that may numb the pain with some worse side effects than the thing you were trying to cure to begin with. But can a Christian ministry help with emotional or physical needs at all? Well, of course. Because people can help with emotional and physical needs, and Christians are people. I am never seeking to dehumanize anyone with this podcast. But my theory is that whether or not the people who help are Christians, they would likely help either way. Or even further, if the only reason someone is helping is because of their faith, their faith likely is not that helpful to anyone except them. When I need help, I don't need help with strings attached. And when I give help, I try my best to do so without strings attached. And I mourn the times when I was a Christian and I didn't help as much as I wanted due to some indoctrinated principles of letting God do the work or I was manipulating people to behave a certain way first, and I take responsibility for the harm I caused when I tried to help. And I wish Christianity would do the same thing. Ultimately, Christian ministry is predatory. Evangelical cultists are seeking to exploit targets and oppress open-mindedness. They will stop at nothing in their pursuit of converting the masses, and this is all under the guise of the imprecise word, ministry. The entire time I've pondered this topic, I have second-guessed it. I hope the listener recalls that I dedicated the first 23 years of my life to pursuing full-time ministry. I get caught in feedback loops of questioning my own motives, trying not to project my own shame onto a whole people group, and also being intellectually honest and precise. But I can't doubt my observations 
until I believe nothing. All rhetorical dodges that want me to offer something empirical in my critiques or be empathetic to beyond what my tiny mind can perceive. I hear them and on my worst days I might even indulge them. The problem is that I feel my anecdotal critiques are never countered with anything other than different anecdotes, most of which tend to sound suspicious or unrelated. I cannot empirically say that Christians are committing crimes with clear intent every time they are performing ministry. I can't know everything going on in everyone's brains all the time. I want the ministry Christians do to be positive. I want these Christian ministries to be full of good people doing their best. And you know what? Maybe they are. But it doesn't change my opinion that the larger structure, perhaps unwarily, but still emphatically self-admitted, acts predatory in their ministering practice. Christians aren't need-meters. They are need-exploiters. It's hard. Coming to terms with the abuse, the trauma given, the insincerity, and the unfortunate diagnosis is not getting easier the more I talk about this. But I must talk about this. In desperation, I am ringing this bell. The white evangelical cult in the United States is preying on you. Not for one particular exploit, but they are demanding lifelong servitude. I, I don't think Jesus was a predator. I guess no one can know, since we don't even have first-hand accounts of how he operated. At least as a legend, I think the church is failing him so much more severely than they realize. I am forced to contemplate how those who pledge allegiance to his name are not only falling short of his character, but seem to be the complete opposite kind of people as you would expect to be his followers. Is it the simple fact that organizing religion dictates that systems will automatically form and all systems can be abused and we are just in an unfortunate era where abuse abounds so widely? Is it because Jesus is the perfect shield for covert abusers to get away with the worst kinds of behavior under his name? Is it because I am misunderstanding history and Christianity has always been an evil totalitarian power beginning with Jesus? I'm not sure. I can't be sure. <laughs> I can only deal with the reality of the current situation. As best as I can perceive it, ministry is simply a word that is more palatable than predation. The cult must convert. The business must market. The team must recruit. This power, in homogeneously centering around an ideology, is coaxed in toxicity, transcending historical eras, geography, and socioeconomic status. But white evangelicalism is the most power-hungry of all, and in severe denial about it. There is no official Christian army, though the Salvation Army gets close. The cult is still predatory, in their recruitment, just as a military might exploit a young man who has little options and many needs by convincing him to fight for his country in exchange for some housing or schooling. But they will leave that man with nothing but empty praise, trauma, and messiah complexes. The problem of ministering to people 
as if they are mere projects, is that you leave them valueless if they ever feel complete. And I suppose the cult works hard to make people feel as though they will never truly be complete until after they die, thus solidifying their lifelong dependence on the cult. But even so, it is hard to feel like there is much to search for when you are part of a group who tells you they have all of the important answers. Most cults allow for the trivial figuring out of your career, how many kids you want to have, what part of the country you might want to live in. But don't you dare get it twisted when it comes to the who, what, when, where, why, and how regarding our existence. It is God, Jesus, now the Bible, his glory, and their church. Deviation from that ideology is risking damnation. Consider your needs met, and all that aren't met are a failure that you are responsible for confessing to God about. And there is something cruel about preying on the small in order to make them feel smaller. I had a decently long phase in which I wanted to be a police chaplain. A police chaplain serves as a uh, support system for law enforcement in times of crisis. They can be volunteers or sworn officers. Um, they come from all faiths and are fully ordained. Some hold degrees or certifications in mental health treatment. And perhaps that career is not completely off the table for me. Uh, there's definitely a lot to deconstruct about how we police ourselves in this country. But there isn't much debate that many officers do experience trauma at their job. But what appealed to me about the this job is it kind of removed the bullshit out of helping people. I, I wanted to be there for informing families of bad news. I wanted to talk about the ugliness that occurs in that world. Put simply, I wanted to help. That's the reality I think we all need to face. That we need help. That while there are levels when it comes to crisis... We all go through crisis, existentially, socially, interpersonally, and perhaps even spiritually. I left Christian ministry because I didn't see it helping more than harming all of these areas. In fact, I really wanted to help ministry improve more than anything. I realized I couldn't help from within, that, that the deconstruction required leaving. Ministry is predatory in that there are predators and the prey. No room for anything in, in between. And no matter how innocent an idea, it can be a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. For example, my dream idea of a job while attending Bible college was to start an organization that cared for suicidal people as well as those struggling with self-harm. I pictured it as something like a resource center, perhaps call it a hopeless shelter, where people could come and be safe. I wanted it to be funded by a network of churches with Christian volunteers and to bridge the gap between the most hopeless and the message of hope found in the gospel. As well-meaning as I was, and as badly as I still want to justify how good something like that could be for people, I have to admit it that kind of ministry would, in fact, be predatory. I was frustrated that crisis centers that specifically focused on uh, 
suicidal folk and self-harming folk, those organizations were never Christian. I was critical, and still am, that Christians don't care enough about suicide and self-harm, and I wanted to be an agent of change. And I wasn't evil for desiring this. But it was predatory. I wanted people to be saved. I wanted people to come to Christ. I wanted the cult to prey on the most vulnerable. I hope the listener understands why I'm saying this. I think it is important to maintain that individuals are worth giving the benefit of the doubt. Christians can be creatively concerned about real problems and experience real empathy and come up with real solutions. But the insidious thread that runs through this toxic ideology is that if you demand allegiance, no matter your ministry, you are participating in the cult of Christianity. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to vernerbooks.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.